I took a couple steps back from that guy. And in my immaturity, I said, oh man, you don't do that to God. You don't talk to God that way. You got to say, you know, nice things to God and say, I don't understand God, but it's okay. No, my friend was doing what we see in this lament. He was, he was talking to God and saying, why, why, why? And the frustration was really, really high. Welcome to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host. Do you ever find yourself in that place of confusion when you can only ask the question, what is going on? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Certainly, Jesus understood what it was like to have to face the dark perversion of truth that night in the garden when he came to the conclusion, Father, not my will, but yours be done. My friend of about 20 years, Tom Marcus, who happens to be the director of Portin Torches, the Torchbearer Center in Costa Rica, wrestles with this scenario in a personal and open way as he now leads us in a study of Psalm 73. I'd like to share today from, from Psalm 73. It's a psalm that has been very meaningful uh, to me. And the things that I get to share, I count a privilege because there's some powerful things in this psalm. Psalm 73 comes in a category of psalms that are called psalms of lament. And a lament isn't necessarily a word that we use that often. So let me just try to give a feel for that word lament. Lament can be translated as a complaint psalm, uh, a psalm that, that talks about things that are difficult and you know, ask the question, why? Why is this happening? I don't understand. So that would be a lament. Uh, it could also be understood uh, equally as a prayer about things that are wrong. It's like, Lord, they're attacking me. Uh, I've got all these problems and you're just laying out your heart before the Lord. That is also a lament. And so lament psalms, which are actually 70% of, of, of the psalms are actually include the, this kind of style of lament. It's, it's all over the place, obviously. And to think of it as a complaint or praying about what is wrong or asking God why, but almost in a demanding sense, like really crying out why wrestling with God is another way that we can think of laments. And l- laments are, are, are real personal because you can sometimes really identify with the struggle. And I I think I really like laments because they're not polished conclusions. They they show you about getting to that conclusion. And, And oftentimes in lament, you can see that there's three main parts. One of the things that you can see, obviously, would be the lament itself, the problem. So if we're thinking three different types of, uh, of topics are going to be brought up in a lament, you, the first topic that can be woven in all over the place is going to be that problem. They're really easy to identify. It's a complaint. It's, a, it's asking the Lord why or don't you care? Uh, can't you see? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm stricken all day long. This is really hard. That kind of thing. Identifying a problem. That would be uh, very common to have. It, it, that, that's what a lament is really about there. But there's the, the lesser known things in the lament. And, and if you look really hard, most of the time they're directly stated. Sometimes in very few occasions they're indirectly stated. But you can find statements of trust. 
And, and trust is a very important thing because trust points us to God and his character, and it points us to statements where we don't know the outcome. We don't know how this is going to work out. We don't know if we're going to wake up tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to, if things are going to go well for us, but we're placing our trust in the Lord because of who he is, how he has acted with us in the past based on his character. We can look forward based on his character to see that he's trustworthy. And so problems are part of lament psalms, trust statements. When, you, when you're reading a lament psalm, you're going to find these statements of trust, and they're so important to pay attention to. And then what you find is when you mix those two together, problem, kind of raw emotion of why things are wrong and asking God to explain himself and, and you're just, you, you really identifying a problem mixed with those trust statements. It's as if that trust is allowing God to speak and the psalmist is recognizing you are faithful. I, I know that. I don't see it. Back to the problem. Why is it happening? But, and you are trustworthy. You are uh, sovereign. You are loving. All of the things that you find in the Psalms of Lament, uh, combining both problem and trust, ends up in the third element, praise. And I and I, I love that word, praise. The way that the, the way that the psalmists use it, because it's always a response to who God is and what he's done. You see, praise would be misunderstood if we think it has to do with our creative ability to say something that God's going to be happy about. Because more than us saying something that God would be pleased with, it is a response to what God has already done or what God what God has already said or who God is. So it's a natural response, really. Praise is a natural response to the God that we're interacting with. And oftentimes, praise becomes the concluding thoughts of a psalm of lament. After working through the problems, expressing the raw emotion of, of how that problem is affecting us, allowing the truth trust statements to interact with that problem, oftentimes the conclusion is a praise. One more thing I want to say about praise would be illustrated in something that while I'm recording this right now is probably happening in England. I don't know if many of you are soccer fans, but I grew up in a soccer you know, loving family. And right now there's a young guy, Norwegian young guy in England. And today he has the potential to break the all-time scoring record in a single season in the English Premier League. And, I, and he's doing it to a home crowd, potentially, right now. I don't know if there's any score yet in the game, and, and, and we'll see afterwards, I guess. But, but the reality is, if he scores that goal today, you know what's going to happen in that stadium. They may even pause the game to recognize. It's going to be, in a sense, a praise of what they've just seen accomplished by this young Norwegian guy who's just had an amazing season. There's just been just a long period of time where the records have, and they're going to fall. I'm pretty sure it's going to fall. But here we have a crowd that is just going to go crazy. They are naturally responding to the greatness, we could say, of someone's athletic ability. And we've anyone who's been to a stadium and seen something amazing knows that the crowd just naturally is going to respond. I love being reminded that praise works similarly. 
God created us in such a way that when we recognize that which is truly great, which would be he himself, when we know him and his character, when we experience his faithfulness or his forgiveness or his love or his provision, his mercy, his his long suffering, all of these wonderful things that we know to be true about in scripture, when we recognize them or it, when it dawns on us, when we, when we see it in our experience, our natural response is praise. And that is is what happens in Psalms of Lament. The problems that are real, the truth about how God can be trusted often ends in praise. The, the, the Psalm of Lament that I'm going to be sharing is Psalm 73, and I'm going to read through it and narrate a few experiences from my life that this Psalm has really encouraged me as I contemplate real difficult things in life in light of who God really is according to scripture and has resulted not only in this psalm but also in my life and in my family's life in statements or moments or conclusions of praise so let, let me read verses and i'll intersperse the stories about how this has uh, encouraged me uh, along the way so the first statement is actually, it doesn't start with the problem right away. It starts with a trust statement. Listen to the trust statement. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's a wonderful statement. The goodness of God. If we, look at, if we were to look at Psalm 25, we, I call that the psalm that is like the ABCs of God's goodness. It is from start to finish, highlighting how God is a good God. And I, and I love Psalm 25 to highlight that goodness because that psalmist is praising God for his goodness in light of the circumstances in his life. But here's Psalm 73. It starts off with that wonderful trust statement. I know my God and I know that he is good. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But here comes the problem. But, for, but as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let, let me stop there. The prosperity of the wicked? The psalmist would have had an understanding of the writings of Moses and the promises of God. And when God was instructing his people how to re represent him on this earth, God had given them instructions on what it's going to look like to be their, his representatives. And he says, latter chapters of Deuteronomy, he says things like, if you follow these statutes, it's going to go well for you. And when you don't, it's not going to go well for you. There's those chapters towards the end of Deuteronomy that talk about the blessings and the cursings. And so there was an expectation that this is the way that it's going to go. And the psalmist right away is identified in problem. He's saying it's not going that way. Here, I'm, I'm envious of the arrogant in verse 3 because I see their prosperity. These are the wicked. It's not supposed to be like that. The righteous are supposed to be the ones that are prospering. But here in my experience, I'm looking out and I'm making observations about, you know, people in my life. And, and the author Asaph of this psalm is saying, it's not as it should be. God has said that this is what's going to happen. And I don't see it. 
in my experience. And then he develops that a bit. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a, that's an image that we may not be familiar with, but it's it's he's jealous of that. They're fat and sleek. They have all their needs met. They're not starving. They're not wondering where their next meal is coming from. They're not on the run. They are just relaxed and at ease. Verse five, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So Asaph's pointing out, okay, God promised that for his people, if they follow his statutes, it's going to go well for them in the land. And if they don't, it's not going to go well from the land. Here, Asaph is seeing the opposite in his experience. And, and you can see the frustration. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 6 says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes, again, he's jealous of this. Their eyes fell out, swell out, sorry, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, it continues, they scoff, they speak with malice, and loftily they threaten oppression. And it's not just among their peers. Listen to how they act towards God himself. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And now he's getting really upset in a sense that this is the way I'm reading it. I see how upset he's getting because it's not just them that they're doing well and he's envious of that. But listen to how it is affecting other people. Verse 10, therefore... His people, God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. Asaph is realizing people are seeing how these guys are prospering. He sees that, they're, that, they, that pride is their necklace. He sees that, that, that they're, they're not stricken. And they're turning to them as their example. And they're actually wanting to emulate. They want to be like these people. God's people are turning back to them. And concluding verse 10, they find no fault in them. These guys are, through their example, causing other people to stumble, to reject God's law, and and to say, these guys are doing it right. If we follow God's laws, that's, that's not going well. These guys are rejecting God, and it's going well. And they say, verse 11, how can God know? They're mocking the very existence of God. They're mocking God and saying, he, he says all these things. It's not true. It's not true. They're rejecting God. And they say, they say, is there knowledge in the most high? And here is kind of a concluding statement about these guys. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So now he's in a sense done with them. He's envious of the arrogant. He doesn't like that he's what he's seen. And, and he doesn't like that they're leading people, God's people astray because people are turning to them as their example instead of following the law. And then he turns inwardly on himself and he's crying out to God, showing how all of this is affecting him. Asaph is being affected by what he's observing. And he says, all in vain, have I kept my heart clean? Have I washed my hands in, and washed my hands in innocence? And then he's saying, verse 14, all day long, I have been stricken. 
And I've been rebuked every morning. And more than that, if I observe all these things, if I look around and I see that the, 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 the arrogant are prospering and the ones that are going against God's will, that it's going well for them, he comes up with this conclusion and he says, look, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And he's talking to God saying basically this, there is enough evidence from what I'm seeing in your world, God, and this is the problem. This is that part of the lament that makes us uncomfortable when someone's talking to God in this way. But he says to God in conclusion, if I had told your people what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking and what I'm concluding, I'm pretty sure I could have led a generation of your children astray. I've got enough evidence stacked up against you, God. I could convince a lot of people and I'm grateful that he did, and I'm grateful that he went to God in prayer. And that's what a really wonderful thing that it models here is that there's an appropriate place to take these frustrations and to be asking why, and it's to God. But when, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I mean, this is wearing me out. I am seeing that the world is not going in the direction it should go, and it seems like God is not acting. At least he's not acting today, and he's not making all, you know, he's not taking the wrongs and turning them into rights. He's not following through with blessing the ones that are doing well and cursing the ones that are not. It's just not going the way that the psalmist believed it should. Let me interject a couple of personal situations that, that, that I've lived through. The first that, that, that this psalm really speaks to, and it's, it, it, it's just a real big encouragement, is when I was on my very first mission trip. Now, this is a long time ago. This is, this is more than 30 years ago. I went on my first mission trip, and we went down into Mexico, and there were about 500 of us from a Christian college that we're, during our spring break, we had been organizing all year long about what we were going to be doing. And oh, 500 people, man, we, we invaded that city in a really positive way. And that, that time there was spent uh, helping churches with construction projects. We had contracted some dentists and some doctors to come down and do some clinics. We organized sports tournaments. There were uh, kids programs. There were music programs. I mean, 500 people, you can do a lot of different things. And we raised, you know, support to have it go on. And one of the things that was really cool about that trip is it was an all year long trip in a sense. We only were there for about, you know, seven to 10 days, but the, the, the trip planning and the, and the preparation took all year. So at the beginning of the year, and this was like a spring break type of thing. So think September, October, there was our first meeting and, and we started by joining Bible studies and Bible studies would get together with, okay, we're all going on this trip. We want to start studying God's word together. We want to, we want to build and have fellowship with one another because we're going to be doing this thing together. We want to have a good foundation. And one of the early teams that was formed was a prayer team. And they, they committed to praying for this trip, September, October, November, December, January, February, and into March. And that team was also committed to being around the clock prayer support, as it were, for the mission trip as it was ongoing. And that was quite a big team. There was probably 30 or 40 people that were praying for this trip from start to finish. So that's the scenario. On the third day of the mission trip, there was a car accident resulting in the death of three members of, of, of the mission trip team. 
the three out of the three people that died, there were five people in a car. Three of them were killed. I knew two of them pretty well. In fact, the Bible study that I was in leading up to that mission trip was a guy named Alan, and he was the leader of my Bible study, and he was killed in that car accident. Lisa was also killed in that car accident, and Lisa was in the soccer class. She led that class because she was a senior uh, soccer player, and she was, uh, you know, studying to become, uh, you know, some sort of sports medicine type of thing that she wanted to go into. And she uh, kind of oversaw the freshman, you know, new newbie uh, soccer program thing going on, and she just helped us through exercises and training to make sure we weren't messing around. And she, so I knew her. And she also died in that crash. There was a guy, there was a kid named Garth that I didn't know, but I, I remembered, I remembered him because he played Frisbee outside my dorm area. So I knew who he was. The two other people in the car that, that had some really serious injuries uh, were friends of mine as well. And, 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 and to make it, you know, even, even more emotionally and so much connected, it wasn't people that I didn't know. These were people that I felt I knew that my brother's roommate was in a car, was in the car behind and he came upon the crash. I think they even bumped into the car and, and a future roommate of mine was in that car as well. So I was close to this. And, and if you can imagine what was going on in our hearts and our minds, this is not the way that it's supposed to go. I mean, we had people guaranteed praying for our safety at the moment that this car accident happened. And, 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 and when you're thinking through all the preparation and all the prayer and all the support and all the, 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 the potential for people coming to Christ, the potential, the, the potential for God's church to be supported, to be encouraged, and, and all of the things that we had, had, had um, been participating in, all of that resulted in the death of, of, of three of our friends. We had a meeting that night, and there were people that said, I can't continue on this. And I supported him in that. To, yeah, I understand that's hard. And for some reason, there was a group, quite a big group that stayed and said, we're going to continue on. And, and, and this is hard, but, but we're going to continue on. In the very next night on the way home, I was on a construction team. We were helping with some repairs in a church. And on our way home that second night, the night after three of our friends died, we got in a head-on car collision. The driver of our car uh, had some knee damage and it, it ended, I think, his basketball career. He was a basketball player. And all of us ended up just like really shaken. I mean, imagine knowing that some of our friends died the day before in a car accident. We're in a car accident. We're standing on the side of the road and a friend of mine gets out of the car, shakes his fist at God and lets loose with how frustrated he was. I took a couple steps back from that guy and in my immaturity, I said, oh man, you don't do that to God. You don't talk to God that way. You got to say, you know, nice things to God and say, I don't understand God, but it's okay. No, my friend was doing what we see in this lament. He was, he was talking to God and saying, why, why, why? And the frustration was really, really high. That instance is like the first many verses that I've just read. I know that God was there with us. His, he's never leaving us or forsaking us. But why, God? It's not the way that it should be. I don't understand. 
And if I, you know, back to uh, 13, all in vain in a sense, are we on this trip? All this prayer, all this support, all, all of this good intention to be to supporting your work in Mexico, Lord, in vain have we done this? The psalmist says, in vain have I kept my heart clean, if I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been stricken. Man, Lord, it's looking like that on this mission trip. Feels like we are stricken. And if we had walked away and told stories about how, in a sense, we felt that God had let us down or that God had allowed these things that we don't understand, man, that could have been a really discouraging thing for a lot of people to hear. But let me continue. When I thought how to understand this, I've already read verse 16. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Boy, on that mission trip, we were tired and we did not know what to think. And there's a wonderful word in verse 17, until, until, until it's a, it's a hinge. It's going to change because that's early statement of the goodness of God mixed in with the problem that the psalmist all of a sudden now we're going to get back to some trust until and the statement is until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. It says, then I discerned their end. And the psalmist continues, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast toward you. Let me me talk through that just a little bit. The psalmist would probably know verses where God uh, declares who he is. And I would say that when he went into the sanctuary in verse 17, it's that representative place where we allow God to speak. We may not go into a physical sanctuary, but we've got God's word. We can have time in prayer when we listen to him. My favorite way to listen to God is by reading his word. And I'm listening to him as he proclaims truths about himself, as we have stories about God, how he's interacted in history. We've got explanations of the theological truths that he wants us to understand and believe and to trust in. And so when I'm listening to God, I can listen to his word. And I can imagine Asaph when he went into the sanctuary, had verses that would come to mind from, from the Torah, from, from, from Deuteronomy, from, from Genesis. And he was reminded of these wonderful truths about who God is. And it's the mixing of the reality of what Asaph is seeing mixed with the reality of who God is. There was not a time frame mentioned here. It wasn't, and the moment I opened God's word, I understood. I don't know how long it took Asaph to get to the place. And I think that's an encouragement to me because eventually we know the outcome. We know that God is going to fulfill his promises. We know, but today he may not be fulfilling them in their entirety yet there there will be a time in the future where we can say it is finished it is all done there is no more sin there is no more sickness there is no more death but until that time we live in this time where there's a tension between yes many moments that life is exactly as it should be moments that we celebrate and we give so much thanks to the lord but there are moments when we're 
patiently awaiting for God to fulfill the promises that he has said. And in that time, Psalms of Lament really encourage us. So I see Asaph interacting with God, and I don't know how long he interacted with God. How long was he in the sanctuary? Was he in the sanctuary regularly during a season? Was he there just one afternoon? Ultimately, I'm not sure it matters how long he was there because the teaching is ultimately when we allow God to speak and ultimately when we have those trusts and that when we place our trust in God, our trust is in him eventually doing what he says he's going to do. And our experience will be eventually, if not now, and if we're not experiencing at the moment, eventually we will see his goodness, his greatness, his, his, his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy, even when at the moment we don't feel it. You see, it was a process of time with the, on that college campus in the aftermath of the death of our friends that we were having, you know, some chapel services. And I'll never forget much later, much later, the mom of one of the students that passed away, I believe it was Garth's mom, came and spoke to us in the chapel service. And she said some things that really have impacted my life. She said this, basically. She said, I would still today trade my life for my sons, and I still don't understand why God allowed it to happen. I still don't. And I would trade my life for his. But I have gotten to know my Lord and Savior in a way that I could have never imagined. And yes, I still would trade my life for my sons, but I am so thankful that I know my Lord in such a deep way as a result of this tragedy. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've never been through that, and I can't even imagine what it's like for a mother to have lost their child. But I concluded, I want to know that God like she does. And I'm not inviting God to to bring tragedy in my life so I can know him, but I want to know him. I want to listen to him so well. I want to be like Asaph in that sanctuary. I want to be a student of your word. I want to sit under the teaching of other people so that I can come to know that God that that woman knew. It still today affects me because a couple years ago in our family, we had a, a... a, a tragedy, I will say, something that was very difficult for us. My 14-year-old daughter at the time was going in for surgery, and uh, she needed to have a surgery because of the type of scoliosis, very aggressive form of scoliosis. Uh, there, there was almost like a, we, we didn't really have a choice if, if this was going to happen, and we agreed with the doctors and the, and the medical teams, not just the team, but the teams that we had consulted with, that she needs this surgery. And after about eight hours of surgery, the nurse came in and said, we need to talk to you guys. And that was a long walk over to the office where the doctors were going to meet us, that they told us that my daughter's had a spinal cord injury and she's paralyzed from the waist down. It's not supposed to go that way. Statistically, it wasn't going to go that way. It's it's, It's a possibility, but it's a remote possibility. We knew that it was a risk. We knew that it was a possibility, but it wasn't supposed to go that way, especially for God's children. I mean, you know, we, we, could, we could have all the evidence if we wanted to and, and, and say, look, God, we, we've given up so much to serve you. Why are you allowing this to happen to us? I could see if it happens as a wake-up call to people that, that are far from you, and we can even see it maybe as an act of, uh, of, of, of you uh, just 
wanting to open up people's eyes, like taking someone away into captivity, you know, so that their eyes would be open. We see that God did that because of his love for his people. He didn't want them to continue in darkness, but God, that's not our case. Our, we're here serving you in, in, in the country of Costa Rica full time. We've, we, we, you know, we, we've, we, we're so grateful for the privilege that we can, and now this, what is going on? Why, Lord, why? And let me tell you about my wife's journey because my wife spent the next year, really the next year, in the sanctuary asking God why. I've never seen my wife spend more time in God's word than in that year. And it wasn't happy conclusions. There wasn't a lot of praise during that time. She was bathing herself in God's truth. Who is God? Can he be trusted? What is he saying about himself? And asking him why. Then why, Lord? Why? Why have you allowed this spinal cord injury to happen to our daughter for her to be paralyzed from the waist down? Well, as time went on, the Lord has been healing her, but we still ask why, because there are lifelong permanent things that my daughter will, uh, will, will face and she is facing and she's facing them so well as such an amazing example to everyone, but she's facing these things and we're still at times asking why. Will she ever be, ever be able to run again? I don't think so. Will she be able to continue learning to surf like she did before? Nope, I don't think so. And we're asking the Lord why, but my wife spent hours and hours and hours in God's word wrestling with God. That's that picture of the sanctuary with Asaph. You know, until I went into the sanctuary, then I discerned. And for my wife, it wasn't a two-week wrestling. It was a year. And I'll never forget the day. I will never forget the day that we were at that we were at our Bible school. We had a worship evening, and we were we were there worshiping with the students. But my wife came to me afterwards, and she said, "Tom, I'm going to stick around for a little while. The students are going to play a bit more music." And she said, "I'll tell you a little bit later about why." That night, she came home and she said, "For the first time in about a year, I actually believe in the praise that I'm singing." She had been wrestling with God for a year, not doubting Him but asking why. And after a year, she came to a place where she said, I can honestly and truthfully praise the Lord. Not for what happened, but for who he is. I see him and I know him and I trust him. And that results in a praise independent of the lifelong consequences that are still a reality for my daughter. But she, can, but she wrestled with God and she saw through his word, who he is. And she's responding in seeing that in praise. Listen to how Asaph responds. He's got this statement of transition when he talks about his own soul was embittered, verse 21, and I was pricked in heart. He calls himself brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. All that problem discussing with you, God, I see that 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 it was, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. All that complaining. But listen to the wonderful conclusions of Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I hear Garth's mom. She said those words. I hear my wife saying those exact same things, and I echo the same thing. Nevertheless, Lord, I'm continually with you. You absolutely, I'm adding that word absolutely, you absolutely are holding my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. 
and afterward you will receive me to glory. I learned years ago that the Psalms, and, and I, I think it proves true, and when I read through them, there's hardly any talk in the Psalms about what happens after we die. In fact, there's more statements about God, we will never praise you after we die as part of the complaint, as part of the lament. Uh, we get more of those, but there's not a lot of hope about after we die that you read about in the Psalms. And I think that's interesting. But here, it's pretty clear. You guide me with your counsel, verse 24, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. What a perspective. You're with me and you're guiding me and you're holding my hand and you're taking me to a place that is going to be incredible. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? I love it when Jesus turned to his disciples and he said somewhere around John 6, he says, you know, are you guys going to leave me as well? And I love the response. He said, where would we go? You've got the words of life. And I think that that's echoing this same thing. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I would say, did not Garth's mom say that? She knew the Lord. And oh, I'm so grateful that I know the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? And my wife wanting to linger there at that worship time to continue to worship the Lord that she is now authentically worshiping. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And I love the honesty of verse 26 and recognizing the weakness. My flesh and my heart may fail. Man, I heard that in the testimony of Garth's mom. Still hard at times. And it's still hard for my wife and I at, at times for, to think about our daughter and, and to think about you know, what she goes through. My flesh and my heart may fall, fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he's my portion forever. Amen to that. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. But you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And even as Asaph didn't see the ones, uh, an end to the ones who were unfaithful to the Lord, maybe in his lifetime, we don't know. But he certainly wasn't seeing it in the first 15, 16 uh, verses of, of, of this psalm. But the conclusion is, ultimately, God, we know what you've promised to do, and you know you're going to put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But the conclusion here is wonderful. But for me, it is good. I love that he used that word good because it's what he started with. Truly, God is good to Israel in verse 1. But for me, it is good. I've experienced the goodness of God. His character is ringing true in my life. I've experienced it. I know my God. But for me, verse 28, it is good to be near God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You know, there's a true sense in which I'm on the far side of that tragedy uh, back in, in college more than 30 years ago. I'm on the far side of it, and I've seen the effect that it's had. And it's been difficult for a lot of people to process through that accident and what was God doing. But I have seen people walking with the Lord today because of what happened as a result of the things. The Lord knew what he was doing, and maybe we would choose to have him do it differently, but ultimately, he's a God that can be trusted. And on the far side of it, I still wish it didn't happen. I don't, I don't know how to understand it. It can still, in a sense, be a wearisome task. But I know God. And I know that he's trustworthy. And I know that he's good. And I can say the same thing for my family. We don't know why it happened. 
We don't know the future. We don't know. We're still walking through it. Sometimes daily, sometimes there's, there, there's a reprieve and there's really nothing going on uh, with it that, that, that negatively affects my emotions. But there's days that it's, it's tough. But for me, it's good to be near God. And I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And there's that wonderful praise statement. Wonderful praise statement. Because we can't help but tell people about the God that we know. Garth's mom stood up and says, I really desire that you know the God that I know. And I responded to that with a desire to know that God that she knew. And the same thing I want to encourage you today. You may have been through some very difficult things in your life. And I pray that through that, you can know God. I'm not going to say that you can understand it all. You may get that grace from God to understand it all. And I, but, but in the midst of that, I pray that you can be in the sanctuary. And if it takes a year or two or three, cling to God and trust in Him, knowing that He is a good God and trusting that you can get to know Him because we need Him. Oh, yes, we need Him. And I can share with you the God that I know today is the same God I knew as a child. But my experience with that God has deepened, not because of the tragedies, but through the tragedies, opportunities to allow God to minister to me, allow God to give me hope, allow God to, 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 to work on my daughter's behalf and to give wonderful thanks for the things that he absolutely has done in her life. I hope that you can see how this psalm is important to me, and, and I hope, by God's grace, that what I've communicated would be an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the His Hill podcast featuring our host, Kelly Doherty, along with Tom Marcus, the director at Port and Torches, our sister school in Costa Rica. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ and don't forget to be encouraged. He is for you. I'm Lizzie and we'll see you next week.